Hello, Alex Zane here. Thank you for choosing to listen to Just The Facts. And while you can still enjoy these episodes forever, you might want to check out our brand new show, A Trip To The Movies, where each week a different famous film fan curates their perfect night out at the cinema, picking what snacks they'd eat, where they'd sit, who they'd go with, and of course, what movies they'd screen. If you love cinema as much as we do, search A Trip to the Movies with Alex Zane or head to our socials at Trip to Movies Pod. That's at Trip to Movies Pod to find out more. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello, I'm Alex Zane and welcome to episode 28 of Just The Facts, the podcast that features a conversation about the career and achievements of a different actor or filmmaker every week. Don't forget you can find us across all social media at JTFPod, Instagram, Twitter, all social media. And if you want to watch the video of today's interview, you can find it on our JTFPod YouTube channel. It'll be out the Friday after the podcast is released. So my guest today is someone I was very, very, very excited to have on. As some of you may know, I am a huge Jaws fan. It is my favourite film of all time. And currently on stage in the West End of London is a fantastic play called The Shark is Broken. It's about the relationship of the three leads in the film, Roy Scheider, Richard Dreyfus, and Robert Shaw, and the way they interacted behind the scenes during their frequent downtime when The Shark infamously failed to work as intended. Playing the late great Robert Shaw in the play is his son, Ian Shaw, who is my guest today and who was absolutely lovely. We talked about his memories of his father, what it's like playing him on stage, as well as, obviously, plenty of Jaws chat. If you love the movie as much as I do, I think you're really going to enjoy this episode and I cannot recommend the play enough. It's proved so successful. It has just had its run extended to the 13th of February next year at the Ambassador's Theatre in London. The shark is broken. So, without further ado, please welcome to episode 28 of Just the Facts, the brilliant Ian Shaw. 
Ian, um, lovely to have you on the show. How are you? I'm very well. Yeah, very happy to be back and working again, you know. You mean after the pandemic or just in general? Uh, well, in general, I suppose, but definitely after the pandemic, you know, it was, um, you know, it, it. I mean, everyone was in the same boat, but um, it was a little bit depressing when the when the West End was shut down like that. You're at the theatre right now, aren't you? I am, yes. Apologies if there's drilling uh, outside, but um, yes, I'm, I'm in the green room. So this is the Ambassadors Theatre in London's lovely West End. And um, how come you're there so early? I mean, I say so early. I, I haven't done a theatre production. Perhaps you're, you're, you're late, but it's three in the afternoon. You've got a show this evening. We have a show this evening. We also, on Mondays... Um, like to just do a, a little speed run of various bits of the play, also to incorporate the understudies who have the unenviable task of going on should anything happen to any of the principals. Has, has that happened? Have the understudies been called on yet? I always wonder whether they're sort of like, oh my God, I've got to do it, or they're like chomping at the bit for one of you to take a fall. I think it's a bit of both, you know. Um, it is. I've done it myself. It's it's a tough job. You're like a fireman or firewoman, whatever. Um, and they haven't gone on, but they have done a performance of the piece, um, you know, to agents and and to an invited audience, uh, which I enjoyed enormously. It was quite um, strange watching the play. I imagine I was going to ask that question. So you're you're the only person until we get to the understudy, who's obviously played uh, your father, playing Quint, in the play. So what is it like watching someone else actually tackle that role? It's very interesting, you know. Um, I mean, I was just quite pleasantly surprised to see that the play works, you know, <laughs> without me. <laughs> <laughs> So um, I, I, this uh, doing a sort of speed run on the on the Monday. This is just a, a once a week thing. You don't do it every day. No, we just we just like to you know just refresh after a, after a Sunday. And it's it's not about adapting or anything. It's just making sure you're all still on point. You're not still fiddling with the play. It, it, it's it, you know no we're not at the moment. No, it's it's pretty much locked down. But it's also just to to, to because what we do is we get the principles to. We have two runs, if you sort of mean. So some one or two of the understudies will be working with one or two of the other actors so that they just get familiar with them. Oh, I see. I see. OK. Yeah. OK. Um, well, I guess I should uh, I should have opened with this. So apologies for my tardiness. But congratulations. Uh, the shark is broken. I got to see it back in October. A fantastic play. Uh, congratulations, mate. Thank you. And um, tell me, though, um, how does it feel? You've just had your run extended. That has got to be a, a nice bonus. Yes, enormously gratifying. You know, it was a success in Edinburgh, but you're always a bit, um, well, I mean, I haven't been in this position before, but I was definitely um, a little nervous of, of what the London reception would be. Um, so, you know, for it to be nicely reviewed and for people to want to see the show is is um, incredibly gratifying, you know. Uh, the reviews have been spectacular. And, and like I said, I mean, I, I loved it. And I think what I found about it, and I don't know whether you've seen this as well on the ground there, as it were, but it's 
got an appeal that goes beyond Jaws nerds like myself. Are you finding that people who might not be as familiar with the film and certainly the behind the scenes story are enjoying the play as well? Yeah, I'm really loving that. I mean, Joseph Nixon, who's the co-writer with me and I together, we were very conscious of trying to, we were trying to have our cake and eat it in a way in that we felt that, you know, that the show had a sort of built-in audience to some degree because we felt that if it was good enough, Jaws fans would want to come and see it. Mm. Um, but we were also trying to, you know, write something that, that although it was inspired by Jaws, you know, didn't require um, any devotion to the film. I mean, I'm always slightly surprised when people haven't seen it, um, but, you know... Um, of course, there are there are you know many 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 people who haven't seen it, um, and it's um, been really amazing to get um, feedback from people who haven't seen the film, um, who really have enjoyed the play. But then I also feel that they then it feels like I'm sending them to Jaws as well. So mm -hmm. I feel like um, Universal should be giving us a you know a little. Um, cut of, of something <laughs> yeah i mean <laughs> like you say there is there is a huge awareness of jaws i found a crazy statistic that when it aired for the first time on british tv in 1981 23.25 million people watched it which My at God. the time was more than half the population of the uk sat down to watch jaws when it first aired Goodness me, that's a great stat. Yeah, it is. But I mean, and I'm sure you've heard this statement uh, countless times since beginning the play, but Jaws is my favourite film of all time. You must have heard that a bit. I've heard it a, a lot, you know, and I'm not that surprised. It is, it is a fantastic film. I mean, I think that, you know, it really came together. Mm. Um, they obviously didn't all think at the time that it was going to come together quite so well. But I mean, it was a hell of a collection of, of talented people. So that's a good start. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Yeah. Both on, both on and off camera. I mean, a, a, an amazingly talented group of people. And um, as your play is testament to, uh, happy accidents led to what could be considered a masterpiece of cinema, in my humble opinion. It is one of your favourite films as well, though, isn't it? It is, very much so, yeah. What do you love about it? I love, I, I think I read a Pauline Kael review of it, and I really agreed with what she said, which is just that, you know, with a lot of thrillers and horror movies, you at some point feel like you know what's going to happen next. And I think Jaws is very good at, um, you know, not providing um, an easy way through. It, you, you really just, you're on the edge of your seat a lot of the time because one moment it's very funny um, and then the next moment it's it's genuinely um heart stopping um mm. and it veers between all of these um you know and sometimes it's quite lyrical as well it's almost like they're on a sort of it's like an adventure movie at times as well and it's it's beautifully shot i mean 
I was just reading that, you know, Mike Chapman, who was the camera operator, obviously they had Bill Butler, who's a fantastic cinematographer, but uh, Mike Chapman went on to do Taxi Driver um, and Raging Bull as a cinematographer. So he was, um, you know, an extraordinary talent as well. It felt like they had two cinematographers for the price of one. Mm. Um and so, yes, I mean, just to say that, um, that, that there, you know, and it, for me, it's like with Nail and I or something like that. It's endlessly quotable. There are so many um, gorgeous little scenes, you know. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I love the one with, I, personally, I love the one with my dad when he's talking to uh, Richard Dreyfus about the shark cage and and, and then he sort of, sings him into his grave with um, farewell and adieu, you, <laughs> you know, to your fair Spanish ladies, because, you know, th th I think for the Shaw family, that reminds us of Robert and his wicked sense of humour mm. um, more than anything, you know. It, you know, I, it's a spoiler alert, but he wasn't a homicidal maniac um, as a father. Um, he was very, very loving and funny. Um. It's um, it's a great scene. That scene, I, I do love that scene. I love uh, so many of the scenes that uh, your father shares as Quint with Richard Dreyfus as Hooper. I'm a big fan of. You got city hands, Mister Hooper. Been counting money all your life. That's a great moment. It is. There's a lot of good lines. I mean, Carl Gottlieb gets a little bit forgotten in this as well. I mean, I think that um, you know, because I think Benchley's original script wasn't tremendous, and and I think Robert wasn't thrilled uh at some of the dialogue but i think carl gottlieb um did a, did a great job at making it funnier and yeah and and polishing it up it's um it's it's true and i mean we'll we'll, we'll talk about it in a bit um the indianapolis speech which i think is, is is obviously it's it's featured in the play and um and there is an interesting story behind that but first i feel i should mention that you are currently for those uh, who are listening to this podcast uh, they'll be watching it as well you are in your costume as quint at the moment am i right no i'm not i am wearing a blue shirt oh okay um, it's the green it's top with the blue shirt the moustache is uh, your own, though, right? Yes, well, it's probably it, it's eerily similar, actually. But um, no, it's it's not. It's just coincidence. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. I just put two and two together. I didn't think that's really nice. He's dressed up for the interview in character. I just assumed because <laughs> you'd come off stage, you were still wearing the outfit. That's fine. It's not though. quite the right green. No. How close is the outfit in terms of authenticity that you wear in the play to the one from the film? I think it's pretty darn close. I mean, the, the jacket, looks the, the jacket, I mean, Duncan Henderson um, is our designer and, um, you know, is a stickler for details. He, he wouldn't uh, settle for anything less. So, you know, um, yeah, it, it, it is as far as I'm a, a, a aware as, as uh, you know, the, the, the actual, I'm not quite sure what they call that jacket. I, I, I know, I think it's a sort of, um, I think it's a fairly standard issue US Army jacket, but it has a, uh, a number and a, I'll have to look it up. Well, it's, a, it's a, an uncanny performance and we'll talk about um, the performance shortly. Um, first of all, just to go back to the, the writing side of it and the genesis of this play, 
what was the one thing that you and Joseph Nixon, your co-writer, spent the most time on? Was there something that you really wanted to get right more than anything else in telling this story? Uh, we, I suppose we focused on the Indianapolis speech, the, the pre, the, the, it's sort of built around that speech to some degree. Um, so, you know, and that was very interesting to us. Firstly, that Robert, uh, you know, rewrote it, but then also that he got uh, too drunk to perform it. Um, you know, so, and then, and then obviously, you know, called he called Stephen up, I think, at two o'clock in the morning and asked to do it again, begged to do it again. And um, Stephen obliged. And, you know, what you have on screen, I think, is something that, you know, is is played endlessly. You know, if you look at YouTube, if you look at the USS Indianapolis speech on YouTube, mm-hmm. it's off the charts how many times it's been played. <laughs> These people just love it. It's true. People love it and people love to sort of dissect the, the history of that, which you just touched on with um, your father rewriting it. Because um, there's so much conversation about the authorship of that speech, various people either being suggested as the writer of it or, or claiming they wrote it. Uh, Howard Sackler, Carl Gottlieb, John Milius, and indeed your father. Who do you attribute that speech to? I think it's three of them. I mean, Carl, Carl talks about it, so he, he's not going to take credit for it. Um, Howard Sackler came up with the idea, which is, um, I think he needs to be credited with that because it, it you know, giving um, Quint the rationale for why he behaves as he does is, I think, very important to the film. Um, Melius, you know, tried his best, I think, with um, a very lengthy speech. Um, you know, and I, but I, I, and I don't know precisely what the what the contribution he made was, but I'd be reluctant to, you know, not to give him credit. Mm. You know, what we have in the film is Robert's rewrite and uh, a, a few additions of his own, mm. but Robert didn't write it on completely on his own. He didn't just sort of pluck it out of thin air. So I think, you know, it's it's three people um, and, you know, Spielberg and Gottlieb would be given the credit for, you know, thinking, giving Robert, you know, permission to some degree to um, to write it. I mean, obviously, he they did have respect for him because he was a novelist and a playwright. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, I think what's interesting to me is that even with even Robert's speech, I think um, most directors would consider problematic because you, you've just got somebody talking for, you know, three minutes or whatever. And you're supposed to show these things in film and not and not uh, tell them. But but it does work. And I think that's also down to his performance. Um, so. Yeah, it's it's a thing of beauty, I think. It truly is. Um, it truly is. It's um, it's an incredible speech and, and, and incredible, an incredible piece of cinema. Um, watching uh, Robert Shaw deliver it as he does. Uh, I love it. In terms of researching the backstory to Jaws and the, the onset uh, atmosphere and everything about that, obviously Carl Gottlieb's book, um, uh, oh, I forgot the name now. Uh, the Jaws, the Jaws Log. Log. 
Yes, yeah. thank you. Yes, the Jaws Log uh, is just a, a wonderful book. And aside from that, where where else did you draw on to uh, to find out what was actually going on behind the scenes? There's a lot of material, you know, um, my, my own family kept a lot of press clippings of interviews um, by my father. Um, there's documentaries that you can dig out, uh, you know, on the end of Jaws DVDs or mm. even just online. Um, I suspect there will be, you know, there will continue to be documentaries because it seems to be a subject that... Um, um, isn't going away anytime soon. <laughs> um, uh, I also spoke to Virginia Shaw, who's my stepmother, who was who was there. And, I, you know, we were just sort of, and, and, you know, and Carl Gottlieb's The Jaws Log was, was instrumental as well. I mean, not everything, it's not a documentary, the play, though. There isn't, um, you know, you have to, um, there is some dramatic license in there. Hmm. Um, but we felt that it was, um, I suppose, spiritually true is, is the phrase I would use. Yes. And I, yeah, I think that's a, it's a, it's a very important point. And I think that's the fantastic thing is it, it is a, a, a play in its own right that obviously, like I said, for Jaws nuts like me, also ticks a lot of boxes that uh, we love. But you actually visited the set. Now, I'm assuming you weren't taking notes because you were about six years old going, this would make a great play in the future. But do you remember much about your time on set? Was it exciting or was it just people sitting around? I remember that that day very clearly because I met Bruce, who was the shark, you know, and um, I found that quite frightening. Um, I imagine. Yeah, it's a terrifying uh, model. Yeah, it, well, it was. Yeah. So uh, I didn't know how privileged I was. Um, you know, I was just a little kid. I also remember seeing Stephen um, and and liking him um, because he didn't seem like the the other adults. He just seemed a bit well. He was quite young and sort of and very friendly, mm. um, and he was sort of hopping about with a Super Eight camera in my in my memory. Um, I and I always I have wondered: Does he have lots of home footage of? Of of that that uh, that he's never released. I don't know. Gosh, that would be that's that's an appetite wetter if ever I heard one. I wonder. Um, <laughs> I don't suppose you saw um, Craig Kingsbury. I've always wanted to know like what your father's relationship was like with Craig, Craig Kingsbury, the the man who obviously plays Ben Gardner in the film. Who I think um, yeah uh, he spent a lot of time with, didn't he? In, in terms of formulating his own quint. He did, and um, I think Craig was very, very useful um, to give to give it that authenticity. I don't know anything about that um, beyond that. I know that that Robert did spend a lot of time with him, and they and they drank together. Um, and you can feel it, you know, in the script, the, all the salty, um, you know, dialogue that that Quint has. Um, I, I, you know, comes from a, a, a real place, and yes. So, I mean, I think that was a great decision that they made to pair those two together. Yeah, 
Yeah, it's um, it's uh, it's funny when you sort of see um, Ben Gardner on screen played by Craig, and you're like, oh my gosh, he even looks a lot like Quint. It's uh, it's a it's a it's a funny yeah. resemblance they've got going there. Although I guess in terms of uh, the play, the biggest thanks should go to um, uh, Bob Matty, uh, the special effects guy who built Bruce, uh, who um, who had this wonderful. So by all accounts, from reading around him, he was a guy who had this can-do attitude. He was like. Sure, I did the squid in 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. I'll build you a shark that'll work in the ocean just to then find out just how cruel the sea could be to a pneumatic shark. So without his failure to deliver a working shark, we might not be here talking about the play. I know, extraordinary, isn't it? That um, I mean, I think some of the younger viewers think that it's, it's not terribly good, but at the time it looked extraordinary, I think. And oh, the other yeah. tricky thing about sharks is that they don't they don't look very real in themselves anyway. You know, mm-hmm. they've got some like like he says in the speech, black eyes, you know, mm-hmm. lifeless eyes like a doll's eyes. And um so that's an extra difficulty. Um I was reading somewhere that it cost like two hundred and fifty thousand dollars to make mm-hmm. and more than twice that to operate, <laughs> you know, which at the time, you know was a big budget <laughs> um and and how they like painted it with this strange sort of sandpapery paint to to make sh- the water run off as it would do on a shark um yeah so those guys are amazing i'm just i'm in awe of technical people generally on film sets but um Bob Matty, you know, Joe Alves, all, all those people mm. did an extraordinary job. It's apart worth from the fact, it, 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 you know, apart <laughs> from the fact that it didn't bloody work. <laughs> <laughs> but as well as, obviously, this is your latest project, but you've been an actor for, I mean, coming up for 30 years now. What made you want to follow a career into acting in the first place? Really and honestly, I mean, I I had both my parents were actors. So, you know, I I think first I should say that it didn't seem to me like it was, you know, an extraordinary job. It wasn't like being an astronaut or something like that, which it it sort of was for some of my colleagues at drama school whose parents hadn't done anything. You know, they'd come from more working class backgrounds and they and so they really had to kind of um, struggle to, to 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 make the confidence leap that way. So. It wasn't an unusual concept, but it wasn't really to do with them, I think. It was my drama. um, Well, he wasn't really a drama teacher. He was a history teacher who directed plays Mm. at school. You know, and when I was eight, he directed me in a play. And I just had I, I just literally thought that this was the best and most fun thing to do. And I said to myself when I was eight, this is what you're going to do. This is what you should do. Because, you know, getting dressed up and pretending to be other people um, just seems such a laugh <laughs> to me. You know, and we, and we had a really nice group of, 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 of kids doing the play as well. So we had a really good um, time together. And he was just a really good and interesting director. So it's a teacher that really got me to, into acting. And when you get a script um, through or you're, you're interested in taking on a role, what gets you excited now after being in the industry for so long? 
I don't know. It could be anything. Interesting characters, really. Um, you know, I don't have any um, people say, what do you want to play a particular role? And I'm like, no, not not especially, I, you know, different roles. Um, I've I've loved doing, you know. You know, I, I, I do love Chekhov and, I, and I've only done one and I would love to do more Chekhov because I find what's so interesting about him as a writer is the complexity of the of the people. They they are they are so um, beautifully drawn and so conflicted. It's very interesting to um, to inhabit their lives. Um, so yes, I suppose what attracts me to a role is a bit of complexity. You know, um, which is why I enjoy playing my dad because he was a complex character. Um, and his mood would shift quite quickly, which is tremendous fun as an actor when you're going from, you know, anger to laughter um, to sadness in, in, you know, in, in swift progression. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's, 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 um, it's interesting. I mean, that's sort of a description of, of Quint uh, as well, in the sense that he is, um, he is quite an intimidating presence in the film. And yet, as we mentioned, also very funny. What do you think attracted him to the role of Quint? Because obviously, I think famously, there were other people in the frame uh, as well. There was uh, Lee Marvin was talked about, Sterling Hayden, obviously General Jack D. Ripper from Doctor Strangelove. Um, your father had worked with um, the producer, Zanuck and Brown, on The Sting. Was that part of the reason you think he took the role or was it what was on the page? I, I know he didn't want to do it. <laughs> you know, as it was originally written, he wanted to do Brief Encounter, which is that, and that shows you how he wanted to, um, you know, alter the trajectory of his casting. You know, having played a heavy in The Sting, mm. um, I think he wanted to do something completely different. Um, but thankfully, um, Mary, his wife, and and Virginia Shaw, his assistant at the time, persuaded him that Martha's Vineyard would be a nice place to go to. <laughs> um, you know, and obviously they were paying well, um, although he didn't make money out of the film um, because of the tax situation and the, the fact that it ran over. Um, but obviously it, it then allowed him to become like a million dollar star after that. Mm. Um, but, um, you know, he was always wrestling, which is one of the aspects of the film, of the play, um, with trying to make money to look after his family and, and live to a certain uh, standard and, um, and artistic um, desires. You know. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I think, um, I think, I think it's in the, the, the play. Um, I, I hope I'm right, but do you think he had a certain um, dismissiveness? I think there's a line in the play where he, he's a little dismissive of, of the idea of them being, in this movie, uh, Jaws is a film, a film about a, a killer shark. Did he think it was all just a bit silly? Yes, I think he did. You know, um, certainly with early drafts of the script, um, uh, you know, I uh, he felt that it was just a, you know, and you and this is the thing though, you never know what you what you it, you know on paper to him, it looked like it was going to be a B movie, hmm. you know, that would make money. Um, you know, and he'd rather be working with Harold Pinter, you know, but uh, I think afterward, you know, I think he, he did see as it was going on, he did see a lot in Steven Spielberg and they went bankrupt and he offered to, you know, defer his wages in order for Stephen to finish the film. Cause I think he thought that Stephen had a lot of talent, mm. and, and when it was released, I think he was proud of it. Um, he realized, I mean, cause this is the other thing you don't know, you know, John Williams's score, Werner Fields's wonderful editing, you know, all these, all these things, you know, all you do at the end of the day is see these very sort of, you know, bumpy, you know, rough, you know, sequences um, called dailies at the at the end of you know the day, and you know, a lot of actors, a lot of actors, would say that they genuinely don't know how good or bad a film is going to be. It's it's you know, it's no sure thing, and I think I think that Robert did, felt that it was going to be poor but was delighted uh, to, re to realise at the end the, what the result was, you know. 
Yeah, I think it's, it's some actors don't even watch dailies because it can put them off their game because it is so non-representative of what the final product will be. And the crux of The Shark is Broken, it really focuses in on one of the most famous elements behind the scenes of um, Jaws, which was the relationship of your father and Richard Dreyfus. And um, did you meet Richard when you were on set as a, a six-year-old? Did you even, as a child, I, I don't imagine you picked up on any tension that was there? No, I didn't meet um, either of the other two. Um, and not, not to my memory anyway. Um, <laughs> I met Richard later in life. So I didn't know that they had this difficulty until, you know, until I was an adult. Yeah. And you, so you found out when you met Richard that, that, no, or... I didn't even that. I mean, I found out after when I when, Well, yes, I suppose I did. When I met Richard, I introduced myself uh, as Robert's son, which I would never do. But I just felt in this circumstance, it was, uh, you know, OK, because I just assumed that Richard would be delighted to see me. And I don't think he was particularly. You know, I think that he hadn't processed at that point the. um you know, the, 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 a little bit of trauma that he had had with Robert. Mm. Um, I mean, I think he has now. It's interesting to see him in, in, in interviews talking about it now, and he seems to be quite sort of wise and at peace um, and has sort of processed, you know, the puzzle. Because it wasn't all bad. It was uh, mixed messages. You know, um, and I think my father's intention, it's very hard to know. I think my father's intention was to kind of school him in how to be a man or, or, an, or, a, or a male actor um, and possibly also to get a good performance out of him. But I think that was the secondary. Um, you know, so complex relationship the two of them had, I think. I have huge admiration for, for Richard, by the way. I've always thought he is a wonderful actor. Um, so that was another thing that made me slightly pause, you know, before writing this. I mean, you know, not least, I love Jaws, and I didn't want to write something that would... Um, you know, in any way cheapen uh, that, you know. And did you, did, you, did you think at the time I should contact Richard or that would introduce a whole other realm of, 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 of issues then? You'd maybe end up having to run every aspect of a play through someone once you open those floodgates, as it were. I think Joseph and me felt we wanted to have artistic freedom to, um, you know, to explore the story. So, you know, um, we didn't contact him, but I mean, I'm sure he would be far too busy to, to respond to, uh, to, you know, to us anyway. And I do think, I, I think you're right. I watched um, an interview that he did. It was on, on, on an Irish chat show. I think it's on YouTube, which where he talks at length about um, the relationship he had with your father on Jaws. And he seems... I think he seems almost regretful slightly that it, it, it went the way it did. And I mean, to use your phrase, he seems to be at peace with it. 
Yeah, I think he is. Yeah, which is admirable as well, because it'd be very easy to, I think, to bear a grudge there. And I think if I'm right, and it is actually, it's a moment that um, you've captured wonderfully in the play, but by all accounts, stories from the set of Jaws. And, and again, these are all stories. Some of them are hearsay. Some of them seem to carry more weight than others. That it really reached a pinnacle of difficulty when uh, your father was asking for help aboard the Orca and he was holding a, a drink in his hand and Richard took the drink from him and dropped it over the side. And by all accounts, there was an audible gasp, gasp from the, the crew who were just like... Oh, you did not want to do that. Yeah. Yes, he did. Yeah. And so we recreate something like that. Um, yeah, that's an incendiary moment. I mean, my father was an alcoholic as well. So, that, I mean, I think that adds the extra uh, element to it. But I do think that Robert saw that Richard had a lot of potential and was a good actor. Mm. Um, otherwise, I don't think he would have spent so much time, you know, um, I don't think he would have bothered with him so much. Um, mm. I think the three of them, and that's Roy as well, which is why it's so crucial, why, why I found it so interesting, is that they are three very different people. Mm. You know, I think Robert was incredibly confident and fearless um, and intellectual to some degree. Um, they were all very intelligent, I would say that. Um, but, you know, and, 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 and Richard was a bit more sort of neurotic to some degree and, and sort of slightly self-obsessed. Certainly that's what Robert felt. Mm. Um, and Roy was, you know, to us, for as far as I can see, was the sort of steady hand, you know, um, the one who, out of the three of them, because Roy didn't have an easy childhood. Roy had a, a very difficult childhood, but he somehow managed to process all of that and come out the other end into this rather wonderful, um, you know, even-handed grown-up. I was going to ask because um, because while your your father and Richard and their relationship on set is really well documented, there's kind of less written uh, about Roy Scheider. I think he's quite. He was quite a private man, and so. In terms of him talking about himself, he doesn't want to volunteer up enormous amounts of information anyway, but um, it, you do get a glimpse into his life in the play. And I do believe that uh, you mentioned Steven Spielberg meeting him. Uh, he has he's given it his blessing. How did you how did you find out that uh, he was um, approving, I guess, of what you were doing with the play? Well, I mean, I don't I don't. 100% know what his feeling is either way, but I do know that he was, um, you know, happy enough to give permission for the Indianapolis speech because Amblin owned the uh, script. And if I'm right in thinking, you've met Steven Spielberg at the Golden Globes and what he said to you does, uh, does make me smile. 
did he say, if I ever make the prequel, I'd like you to play Quint? Something along those lines. I can't remember exactly what he said. Okay. Um, it was, it was, you know, can I, it, I, but I think he was being amusing. You know, he was being kind and, and sweet and, um, yeah, but I, I mean, mean I, you know, that that would have been, yeah, that would have been bad. And I mean, you know, what's great with Stephen is he doesn't need to make sequels, does he? I mean, has he made sequels? He made The Lost World. I think that's his only sequel. He followed up Jurassic okay. Park with The Lost World, but that's it. Okay. That's it. Generally speaking, he's no, um, yeah. he's more interested in in uh, you know conquering new territory. And it's nice that he sort of, I mean, gave permission or through Ambling gave permission, however that played out for the play, because he's very protective of Jaws. I mean, you hear these rumblings every so often from within the bowels of Universal going, oh, a remake of Jaws. We're going to remake Jaws. And he every time it sort of rears its head, he's very clear that Jaws should not be remade. Well, bless him. I think that's wonderful. I mean, you know, um. I'm very happy, and I think Jaws fans are very happy that it that it hasn't been. Hmm. I mean, you just couldn't. Uh, I mean, what would you do? CGI sharks? I mean, I just and not not even the shark. I mean, the relationship, like you said yourself, between um, Roy Richard and uh, your father. It's uh, it was it would be it's lightning in a bottle, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, and, of course, I think it will be remade. Do you really? I think so because you know. I love Stephen's attitude, but these, I believe that it'll have a limitation, you know, that at some point the script will be beyond copyright. You know, I think it's 75 years after. So perhaps. I hope Carl, I hope Carl Gottlieb lives for 150 years or whatever, but, um, you know, um, I was just doing the same math. Five years after that, it'll be it'll be up for grabs. Yeah, I was I was just trying to work out in my head. I was like, will I will I still be here at that point? Because I'm not sure I want to see that. <laughs> <laughs> it is. Um, I, you've no doubt heard it a lot. It is uncanny uh, when you first come out on stage uh, as Quint, as your father in the play. Um, you not only look. Uh, Oh, so much like him, uh, but you know the accent, the costume, the, the fact that you're on the set of the Orca. Are you are you aware that there's a kind of? I mean, where I was sitting, there was almost an audible gasp from the audience when you appear. Are you aware of the atmosphere in the room, sort of changing and people going, "Wow"? No, someone else said this. I'm not aware of that. I mean, I am aware that I believe I am. Roberts. I mean, you you tend to uh, obviously try and get that feeling with every character you play, but I feel that it's there's a shorthand between us because you know father and son. You know, you feel that you are genetically, you know, similar, and I know that my voice and my face are, you know, right for the role. So. Hmm. Um, you know, and I feel I've also, you know, been studying him my whole life to some degree. Um, so it it feels right, but I don't know what the perception is. 
Um, I mean, I can only speak personally, but to be completely candid, there, there's a part of me um, where when you're performing the Indianapolis speech, it, it was almost like watching your father performing the Indianapolis speech live on stage, like pulled straight from the pair the, the the film and put on stage. Does that make sense? It was it was a very strange moment. Well, I'm very happy, you know. I did want to ask, what's it like? Not so much playing Quint, but playing your father on stage and, and that experience, which I think is quite unique. Um, I don't know how to describe it, really. It's it's uh, he's a great character. You know, um, they always used to say as well that you that as an actor, when you're playing a character, you have to like them, hmm. you know, even if they're, a you know, murderer or whatever. Um, well, it, that's very easy for me. You know, I adored my father, so um, that's easy. And, you know, like I say, he was very interesting. And, and uh, what's the most liberating thing is, because I'm quite, you know, <sighs> oddly, I feel, you know, in life when I'm walking around, I feel quite shy and restrained um he was fearless and he wasn't frightened of anything i don't think that's a nice um aspect to feel um you know i'm too i'm i'm, I'm i haven't got the confidence that he had and um it's it's liberating to to be playing somebody that um free and confident and what was he like? Like, what are your memories of him when, obviously, outside of Jaws, as a, as a family, as, as your dad and you're his son at home? Very loving dad, very funny. I mean, obviously, you didn't want to, you know, um, argue with him. But um, but um, but he was extremely affectionate, loved children, you know, and loved playing. Um, so the time we did, obviously, he was working a lot, but the time we did have with him was... Um, great fun. I remember one time where I, haven't, I don't think I've told this story. We were watching um, Earthquake on television, which is a, a sort of Charlton Heston B movie. Yeah. And uh, we were both in bed together in our pajamas watching this television film. And I think I accidentally pushed a button on the on the wall. Um, anyway, as we were watching it, all of a sudden, this, this, the Beverly Hills police burst into our room with guns, you know, pointing at me and dad. Um, because I'd obviously pushed, it was quite an ex expensive um, house we were renting. And it had an, like an emergency uh, button that, uh, <laughs> that I accidentally pushed which was only to be used in case of burglary or whatever. Um, but yeah, we were both quite that. I did see him look quite alarmed at that point. <laughs> that was I think, maybe the only time I ever saw him looking nervous. You found the limit of his fearlessness. Um, in terms of, uh, well, I just want to share one story with you, which was a, a big moment for me. It's quite a weird story. I'll make it quick, but I was on the set of, um, 
a, a different a, a, a movie called The Equalizer 2 starring Denzel Washington. And um, mm-hmm. uh, I was uh, talking to the props guys and they were showing me a table uh, full of the weapons that Denzel was going to use in the climax to the movie. And they handed me one weapon and they went, do you know what that is? And I was like, no, I don't. And they went, that is Quint's harpoon gun from Jaws. And I went, wow. Wait, the actual one. And they were like, yep. And I got so excited. I could not believe that I was holding Quint's harpoon gun. So it's, you know, the actual harpoon gun is still sort of there in the props world of Hollywood, still making its way from movie to movie. Well, have you seen the um, the, the new museum in Los Angeles to, to movies? Yeah, the Academy's museum. Yeah, I haven't seen it, but yeah, I'm aware of it. Yeah. Well, I, I think Bruce is one of the main features as you walk in. Oh. So I'm looking forward. I'm looking forward to wandering around there one day. Yes. Um, just to go back to um, to playing your father. Obviously, uh, he passed when you were eight years old. Is it? Uh, what's the word? Is it cathartic? Is it slightly therapeutic? Playing him and I don't know, going through some of your memories of him, or potentially going through some of the issues that he had at the time. How, how does that play? Because I guess from my angle, there are moments when you're watching it going, this is a really, really personal performance. You know, writing it was cathartic, I think. And, and, and you know, finding out more about what made him tick, because there's a lot of, you know, opinion in there that we've pieced together from other, you know, from things that didn't happen during Jaws, but just things that he believed. Um, so that was very cathartic and, and, and interesting. Um, in terms of it being personal, you know, I don't know. I mean, a lot of art is personal and you, but you also feel it's universal. I mean, I know, you know, not, not everybody obviously has parents who do the same but 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 a lot of people have parents who they've lost like so and my father you know lost his father when he was 12 so you know i i and and a lot of people that's happened to well you know a lot of people have written to me and talked to me about losing their a a parent early Hmm. um so that's a sort of universal theme to some degree um i do find that very interesting um perspective you know because you tend to sort of um to think about your grief as being only you (laughs) um but everyone grieves you know and and you know, listening to my father talking about losing his father um, somehow makes it, I don't know why, but it somehow makes it um, easier, you know. Um, And I suppose I feel like I'm turning sadness into a story, which is, um, you know, cathartic. It feels like it is, you know, 
you're sort of recycling something and using it um, uh, to be stimulating for other people. Mm. Just to clarify uh, something that we talked about earlier, obviously you've seen Jaws. Uh, you watched it. Were you quite young when you watched it? I think I was probably seven, eight. How are you? With it was before team? my dad died, you know. Oh, you were, did you watch it together? I don't know. I can't remember who I watched it with. All I can remember is being um, terrified, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you and me both. I, I have two years on you, though. I have uh, I was five when I watched it. And um, and it's wow. uh, I have no relationship with the sea. The sea is just one giant pool of death, as far as I'm yeah. concerned. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't, don't get me wrong. I love sharks. You know, I, I do love sharks. And, you know, I mean, obviously, Jaws demonized sharks for a generation. But um, but yeah, I. Uh, I, I failed my 25 meter swimming uh, certificate because I swore there was a shark in the swimming pool and climbed out. Have you had uh, any experiences of being in water and going, nope? Well, I didn't swim for, for, for a, I would say, at least two years, mm. even in a swimming pool. Um, no, I was n- had no interest. It was that shot from underneath yeah. that kind of sealed it for me. It was just like... Right, okay. You just you know a sandwich for somebody, you know, or <laughs> something. Yeah, um, well, that's it, isn't it? I tried to, I did try and analyze this fear, and I think it is it's about the unknown. It's about, you know, you watch those videos of great white sharks breaching at, you know, 60 miles an hour or whatever, and you're like, well, you know, you just never see it coming. And just to not know that that isn't below you is the scary thing. I couldn't have bubbles in the bath for a while because I needed to see the bottom. That's right. where I was. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm with you. I have, um, I have a shark tattooed on my wrist uh, to remind myself if I, if I ever get drunk on a beach, not to think it's a good idea to go in the sea because that's right. where the sharks are. Yeah. It's- I mean, it's obviously very unfair, isn't it? I mean, I, but I think a lot of shark charities have latched onto um, Jaws and it, mm. and they kind of flip it round, don't they? They, um, you know, because um, the poor sharks, I mean, I think Stephen's very, um, I mean, that would probably be his only regret. Yeah. That, that uh, you know, he didn't paint sharks in a great light. Well, it's, it's a funny one, isn't it? I just don't think people knew that much about sharks at the time, because I, I remember this, the, the famous uh, Zanuck and Brown, the producers, uh, before they decided to build a shark, they investigated getting someone to train a great white shark. And they were like, this is what we need. We need the shark to be tame enough to do close-up work with a stunt double. So you- is that... Is that is that true? I've never I've never um, known whether that was true or rumor. I mean, you kind of want it to be true because it smacks of that kind of Hollywood. We can get we'll just get a shark uh, attitude, like from two big shot producers. But yeah, I don't know. I do know. I mean, I would, they probably should have got a, you know like three dolphins and put a, sh- a suit around the, <laughs> the dolphins. <laughs> <laughs> Now, you see, that that would be wonderful. Uh, the bit of trivia I do know is true um, is, uh, I can't remember where I found this bit out, that Steven Spielberg actually wanted to end Jaws 
as Brody and Hooper were paddling back to shore with a school of shark fins appearing on the horizon heading towards them. And uh, Richard Zanuck had to go, Stephen, there are just a million reasons why that is not a good idea. Right. My God, never heard that one. Um, I've spent too much time on the internet, to be quite honest, Ian. Um, so uh, my favourite bit of trivia, though, of all of them, is you've never watched the Jaws sequels. I, I tried. <laughs> <laughs> but, oh, yeah. I, 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 I can't be disparaging about them because, because I haven't watched them, put it that way. As a kid, I was so taken with Jaws that I've, I've got time for Jaws 2 and even Jaws 3D. It's the fourth one where things go off the rails. Um, Ian, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Uh, once again, as I start the interview, congratulations on a fantastic play. Um, would you, complete fairy tale world, blank canvas, dream factory, I would love to see this make its way onto the cinema screen. Fairy tale land, would you like to see a similar thing? Um, possibly. Um, it would, it, it's just a question of who, who would be doing it, you know, because, um, I, you know, it would have to be the right people. So I, I don't know is the answer. But it, okay. I'm not going to, I'm not going to press the point, but dream factory. If, if, if I was, if I could pick the people I would want to, you know, produce, direct, etc. then, then yes, I think I would. But at the moment, you know, I'm just really trying to focus on making the play a success and for, you know, um, you know, and for people to enjoy it as a theatrical experience mm. uh, and not get too uh, ahead of myself. Well, I mean, you've got till I'm right thinking it's the 13th of February next year. That's when the run's been extended to. Yes, that's right. And then, I mean, not to get ahead of yourself, um, but are there plans to take it on tour? We haven't discussed it yet. We will um, probably, I, I think, sit down uh, after New Year's Eve mm. and 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 discuss what the future will be there will be a future for the play you know um but i don't know where and when that's i i, I can see it having a great future i, I can't recommend it enough uh, i i had a great time and like i said i think uh jaws and non-jaws fans alike will um really really enjoy it um congratulations it's on at the ambassador's theater uh ian Farewell and adieu. Thank I you. <laughs> I toyed with that sign off and there's a part of me that hates myself for doing it, but there you go. It just happened, right? No, that's, that's very apt. <laughs> have a great rest of your day and have a great performance tonight. Thanks for your time, mate. Thanks very much, Alex. Cheers. Cheers. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hello, Alex Zane here. Thank you for choosing to listen to Just The Facts. And while you can still enjoy these episodes forever, you might want to check out our brand new show, A Trip to the Movies, where each week a different famous film fan curates their perfect night out at the cinema, picking what snacks they'd eat, where they'd sit, who they'd go with, and of course, what movies they'd screen. If you love cinema as much as we do, search A Trip to the Movies with Alex Zane or head to our socials at Trip to Movies Pod. That's at Trip to Movies Pod to find out more.